Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist. Today, I have a special guest with me, Anne Blake, my co-worker at Antioch University. We're both professors in the master's program. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Anne is going to explain Jungian psychology, but first I have a few announcements. Our new website is up and running, so please visit psychologyinseattle.com to check it out. We have a new outtakes video on our homepage, so check that out if you like. It's, it's, it's humorous, shall I say. <laughs> and, of course, please visit our Support Us page if you want. You can send emails to contact at psychologyinseattle.com. That's contact at psychologyinseattle.com. We always love hearing from our listeners. And, hey, therapists or other people in the biz, send us your info in a concise email, and maybe we'll give you a shout-out. And today's music, of course, is provided by Bread Knife Incident. Also, I wanted to mention that sometimes I get emails from students saying that professors will assign the podcast while they're out of town. You might be able to relate to this. You know, you go on vacation and you need to provide content for your students so, so that um, you don't have to meet in during the break. <laughs> and so some professors, I'll hear from students saying, yeah, I, I, your, uh, my professor assigned one of your podcasts while I was gone. <laughs> so along those lines, along the lines of students and, and Antioch, I just want to put this out there. The students at Antioch are amazing. Absolutely. Every day, I witness students grinding away, working hard to make a difference, exploring the difficult corners of their personality when they don't necessarily have to do that, Mm -hmm. volunteering their time to help others, dedicating themselves to social justice, all the while they're paying money to do it. They pay money so they can volunteer their time to help others at their internships, which usually takes over a year of their time. And it's the most grueling job of their entire life. Uh Take Uh it from me. I see it every, you know, whenever I work with students year round and they're, they're very stressed out, right? They're smart. They're privileged. They could do anything they want. They could become bankers and they could make (laughs) lots of money. But instead, they chose to be trained as therapists and help the world to make a difference. It's truly noble, in my opinion. And it's humbling for me to witness. And that's why I have dedicated a portion of my career and life to helping them help other Mm -hmm. people. If I can help them make a difference in the world, then that makes it all worth it, right? Yep. Do you find that to be true in your life? And in fact, Kirk, on their internships, they are working with clients who have the oftentimes the most severe disorders and and problems. Right. And they're brand new at this job and they are working on the front lines. Right. And doing well. Right. They get the most difficult cases, the most stressful cases. Yeah. If a case came in the door to an agency that was perhaps had more optimism and and would be more easily helped and more mm-hmm, easily mm-hmm. Uh, assisted and and the goals would be met more quickly the that case would be given to a more experienced that's right. therapist that's right it's really ironic yeah yeah and heroic yeah they do yeah heroic yeah, yeah. i like that yeah. I teach two sections of case consultation on Fridays, mm. and I've been doing that for several years. And I realize at the end of the quarter that I start to have a little bit of secondary post-traumatic stress from hearing all those really difficult narratives. Right. Two sections. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sometimes on Friday, I walk by the window and I see you in there with this small group. Yeah. My, my group meets on Wednesday mornings, uh-huh. so no uh-huh. one's ever on campus on Wednesday right, mornings. Right, right, right. It's a class that is ongoing mm-hmm. in, in the CFT program. We have our students students for 15 months. Right. I, right. I had a student in my class for uh, almost two years. Wow. And, and so you get to know each individual very well. There's only, yeah. you know, six to eight students in the class and, yeah. and the students get to know each other really well and they support each other. Uh, there's lots of crying. There's yes. lots, of, lots yes. of laughing. Yes. Yes. Um, and a lot of heroism as, as you put it. Yeah. 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 So, Jungian psychology. Yes. I I am thoroughly confused by Jungian (laughs) psychology. Um, It's it's not as easy to understand as, say, cognitive therapy. And so, every time I I, I try to figure it out, I crack a book and I start reading it and I just go, okay, I think I kind of understand. And then I hear something else and I go, I don't get it. So, I asked Anne Blake to come on the podcast and explain it once and for all so I can know everything about Jungian psychology. I'll I'll become 100% proficient and knowledgeable. So help me out. And I'm smiling broadly. <laughs> so I, I really think that Jungian analytic psychology is really basic in its nuance. The main thing is 
individuation. That's the goal. Mm. It's not the main thing. It's the main goal. And that means to adaptively appreciate all the parts of oneself. Mm. So it's not about changing per se when we become who we really are Mm. rather than how we are because how we are has to do with trauma and what Jung calls complexes which are the traumas constellated around an emotion and then we kind of react automatically I had an example of that yesterday with my family on Mm. Christmas Day Mm. and um, so to accept all that to appreciate that to incorporate and integrate all that so that the person is whole Mm. and then from that comes much more easy relating with self and other. So let me try to reiterate this. So sure. Tell me, tell me if I'm wrong. Do mm-hmm, not tell mm-hmm. me that I got it right unless I got it right. <laughs> you can depend on me. So it's about individuating, yes. meaning that we're not dependent on other people in emotionally or it's something? It's very much like differentiation in the family system. I see. Okay. Differentiation. Yeah. So you're able to give to others while having a choice in the matter. Yes. You're able yes. to separate yes. yourself when needed to protect yourself. Absolutely. So you can relate and give and have a lot of love. Yeah. Yeah. But you can also pull away when you're being harmed by other people. And it starts with self. So okay. there's there's the the nuance there. So I have to accept all parts of myself so that I'm not projecting myself onto others. Now, projection never stops. So projection means that something either irritates me in somebody else or I admire something in somebody else. And it's actually about me. But because it's unconscious, the way it becomes conscious, I project it out there. And then if I have enough consciousness, I realize, oh, when I have too much affect, either, either irritated or admiring, then I realize, oh, that's me. I see. And then I own that as another part of integrating myself. And that's potentially related to a complex or always related to a complex? Well, the alwaysnesses are hard. Yeah. Um, but I would say often, if not always. Yeah. Okay, right. Absolutely, yes. So the complex as it relates to early childhood relationships and... Com- or, or trauma. So trauma can be all parts of our life, all duration of our life a trauma that happens during our adult years yeah but some kind of difficult major event relational event or ongoing relationship yeah and that produces a complex yes in which when we are in a similar situation or something that triggers the complex that's it engages that and then engages that automatic response i see and we become we have increased affect, as you say. Yes. Uh, overly angry, overly yes. judgmental. Yes. That kind of overly thing. scared. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we flee, fight, or freeze. Right. Okay. So that is a major part of Jungian analytical psychology. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Would if Carl Jung were here, would he <laughs> go? Only. Would he go? What are you talking about? Because <laughs> sometimes I think, because what you just said to me makes a ton of sense. Yeah. When I read Jung, yeah. it doesn't always make a ton of sense to me. So sometimes I think Jungian psychologists or Jungian therapists have evolved over the years. Is yeah, that, ab- is, is, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And Carl Jung was making it up as he went along. So he and Freud became acquaintances, and Freud was Jung's mentor for a while, until 1913 when they had a break in their relationship. And if, if you've seen the the movie A Dangerous Method. Mm-hmm. I went with a bunch of my Jungian colleagues. We have an organization called the Jungian Psychotherapist Association, and we've been meeting for 20 years, so we're very close friends, as similar to what you say about the case consultation students. And so a bunch of us went together. And one of my friends, who's got a great sense of humor, as we walked out, she said, well, I guess we're all going to become Rogerians. Because <laughs> to ally ourselves with that kind of movie was very difficult. So it was a difficult movie for me to watch. Was it inaccurate based on what you know about the history of his life during that time? What everybody knows is that he had affairs Mm. and that he had very intense affairs Mm -hmm. and that he had one with this client and several other clients. And those clients, um, some of them became colleagues, as Sabina Spielrein did. Uh, Tony Wolf was another one who he had a, I think, ongoing affair with forever. The thing for me about Jung was he was a human being first and foremost for me. And that he tried to bring consciousness to what he did. The The Red Book, the Liber Novus, was just published, I think, in 2000 or 2001. 
And this is his journal that he started in 1913, around the time that he split with Freud, and went into his unconscious and his dream life and um, drew incredible pictures. I had no idea he was such an artist, such a good artist. And some of the images that I've seen over time actually came out of the Red Book. I didn't realize they were his. And he sunk into his consciousness to the depths. I don't think he had a psychotic break. I think he was just stripped of all those usual social things that keep us functioning. So I come from Minnesota and the phrase is, if you can't say something nice, don't say something at all. Don't say anything at all. And that was not true for Jung, that he was as much himself as he could possibly be. And and he's stripped his consciousness and his soul and his ego bare. For how long was he in that state? Um, I'm reading it now in a study group, and so I'm trying to imagine that last. He makes a last entry quite late in his life, but the intensity of it, I think, I'm going to say 10 years. I don't know for sure if that's right, okay. but it was, a, it was a moderately long time, and uh, it's yeah. fascinating to read. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. It's a beautiful book. Mm-hmm. You dedicated one to Antioch. I am it's, a student. It, yeah, it's it's in the library at Antioch, and it's there for everyone to yeah. look at. It's on the podium. It's, it's sitting a, out it's in a, the middle. It's a, it's a big, ironically, it's a blue book. Just joking, it's actually red. <laughs> uh, it's a big red book, and it, it has, uh, I guess, pictures, photographs. His paintings. Of his paintings and his writings, his, his, his handwriting. So they photographed the entire red book, yeah. and then they translated it into a variety of languages. Right. Of course, we only have the English there. Yeah. Um, but those are his actual drawings and paintings. So this is one of those confusing aspects mm-hmm. of Jungian mm-hmm. people to me, that you would have a book that seems to be, when I look at it, confusing, personal, mm-hmm. uh, not mm-hmm. meant to be read by right. people. Right. So it inspires you to think about yourself. Absolutely. Meaning of life, relationships. And especially the nature of human beings and our and our progress, our development. So looking at yourself, yeah. it involves a lot of looking at yourself. Absolutely. So you're looking at yourself, how you react to things, your own complexes. Yeah. How you can shed certain things that you want to shed incorporate so accept there's not much shedding okay so it's incorporating um that that i have the potential for doing everything that anybody else has ever done Mm -hmm. and because of my consciousness and and uh working hard on myself i don't do some of those really egregious heinous things but i still do some things that i wish i didn't i mouth off at times yeah you'll hear me muttering up and down the halls at Anya. yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I've been there at least close to ground zero with you at times <laughs> a few years ago. Uh, I yeah, remember yeah. there was some stressful times. Yeah. Uh, so tell me if this is right. So yeah. you are looking at Jung's writings and you're thinking, wow, look at what he's doing. He's really digging deep. He's really looking at himself. He's asking the tough questions. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's starting to somewhat lose his mind in the depths. Yeah. What can I do to look at myself, to connect with life, to connect with myself? How can we do this together? Let me share this with you. Is that what the study group is like? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. And analysis is non-hierarchical. So it's not as though the analyst or the clinician, because I'm not an analyst, it's not as though the clinician is the expert. The clinician knows a lot of things. The clinician has done a lot of work on one's own life. Like I said, I've been in analysis now for 21 years and was in therapy before that. And then when I sit with clients, and this is what I ask my students to attempt when they take advanced theories, Jungian at Antioch, is to notice what goes on in our entire being So when I get images, a word will come. Um, I don't give any clinical examples, and if I think of one for myself, I'll I'll do that. But and so, or I'll have a a response in my body somewhere. So I might have a, a a little bit of an ache in my neck or my back, and and when I say to clients, and when I see students do that, it's almost. It's so close to 100% that I'll say, you know, I, want, I try to keep myself out of it because otherwise clients will get distracted by me. I'll say, what's going on in your neck or what's happening in your back? Or, Are you feeling some tension in your torso? Like 99 times out of 100, they'll say, yeah, 
yeah, that's really going on for me. Mm-hmm. So it's that energetic response back and forth mm-hmm. that is about settling into myself enough that I can be um, a barometer. And then when something comes up for me, I always say, okay, how much of this is mine? Yeah. There's a marvelous graphic that one of the students called a British flag. So it's a rectangle that goes sideways and then a line horizontally. I'm a little bit dyslexic, so I have to really, really concentrate. Horizontally, which divides the consciousness and the unconsciousness. And then the, the therapist is on one um, up-down axis, and the client is on the other vertical axis. And then the lines that go diagonally between the corners are what make it the British flag. And so the the therapist is monitoring all of those vectors. So there's a line across for the conscious relationship between the two people. There's a line at the bottom that's the unconscious relationship, which is out of our awareness until something happens. And most importantly for me is the vertical line that goes between my consciousness and my unconsciousness, that I'm looking for cues there that are certainly mine, but we are so similar as human beings that when things come, I can filter what's mine and then wonder aloud about, are you feeling sad? It looks like to me you're feeling sad, or you you look sad. It's very similar to how I think as a psychodynamic a systems therapist. Yes, yes. Intersubjectivity. That's exactly the word, yes. Yeah. Yes. So would Carl Jung have said those words or along those lines? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he, he said a couple things that I very much appreciate. One is that, that he did therapy X for client X. So his analytic psychology is, for me, more a philosophy than a bunch of techniques. I mean, uh-huh. there are some techniques, but, but not as technique as many of the other therapies. Right. And so it's mostly about being present, having contact with our own unconscious so we can m- put that into the mix. Um, and then he also said that if both people don't change, if the clinician and the client, if one or the other doesn't change... The therapy is not happening. And the analyst stays in the analytic position, yeah. so it's not an informed friendship. Right. But both people change. I want to get back to the movie for a second. Okay. Um, because I, I want to talk about some other things after that. Yeah. In the movie, the, the timeline is when Carl Jung is still a quote-unquote pupil of Freud, an, an underling associate, so to speak. Yes. And he is starting to work with patients and he has a, he's married with children. Yes. And he has a patient played by Kira Knightley. Yes. Her name was Sabina Spielrein. Sabina Spielrein. Spielrein. Mm -hmm. And she comes to the hospital because, because she was traumatized. Yeah. Sexually abused, yeah, probably. I think so. She seemingly has a fetish for being hurt during yeah. sex. Yeah. In order f- yeah. for her to have sexual pleasure, she needs to be yeah. hurt somehow physically yeah. or controlled. And she and Carl Jung enter into analysis or treatment of mm-hmm. some sort. And mm-hmm. then Carl mm-hmm. Jung starts to have an affair with her. That's right. Well, but prior to that, he starts to involve her. As a colleague, he starts to help to train her because she wants to become an analyst herself. And then he starts to have an affair with her and he starts to have sex with her in that in the way that she wants to have sex by hitting her and that that sort of thing. And then Sabina starts to develop her own theories, and Carl Jung encourages her to do that. And then there's the break from Freud, because Freud was very paternalistic and very controlling, and and he wanted everyone to, to do exactly as he said, yep. not as he did, incidentally. Yep. And then Sabina and Carl Jung end up breaking up to some extent. But this this goes on over several years. Yep. Yep. And the history of this story is potentially accurate? Certainly the external facts of it are. Oh. The actual relationship and what happened between them, I mean, that's not chronicled anywhere. Yeah. The degree to which that happened, um, I don't know. I mean, it happened in a closed room. Back then, there were no ethical standards. They were the first people. Yeah. When I watched it, I thought, oh, interesting. You know, I, I have a better understanding of one person's view of Young's life. 
But when you watched it with your friends mm-hmm. that are all, I don't know, Jungian people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you you said, ugh, that was awful to watch. Now, I said, ugh. Oh. Not everybody said, ugh. Oh. But for me, I start getting a little twitchy, as you can see in the room, as we talk about this. My experience as an analysand, analysand and my experience as a clinician is clients come to us wanting help. I come to my analyst wanting help. And then we also do this trance stuff of trying to make it so that I don't have to change and I can get my analyst to collude with me in saying, yeah, that is the way it is, mm-hmm. or to treat me the way I'm used to being treated. That's what I saw in the movie, is that he got caught up in his own vulnerability as a human being. And went along with the dysfunction, shall we say. That's what I think, yeah. Okay. That's what I think. Well, aren't we all guilty of smaller versions of that at times, right? Oh, absolutely. And again, absolutely. the field was not developed at the time. Right. They're, they had no one's experience right. to learn from. Right. And Jung was, I mean, and Freud was the opposite of that. There was a nice little Jungian slip I did there. So <laughs> Freud was the opposite of that. In What's that, a Jungian slip? <laughs> is that a thing? It's, it, well, it's more personal to me. Oh, it's, okay. it's, it's one of my many jokes that I amuse myself with. Um, but Freud was the di- direct opposite. So at the beginning of the film, Jung was sitting behind Sabina Spielrein. Yeah. And she was very nervous about that, which... I can imagine that being true. So Freud would sit behind the client, the patient would be on a sofa. So he was very much hands off and even no eye contact and very little even verbal contact. So Freud went to that extreme and Jung in some ways went to the opposite extreme, not only about sexual contact, but just in terms of that more horizontal relationship. Does being a Jungian person make you automatically hateful of Freud? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, there, there certainly are camps. Is it like Team Edward and, and Team... <laughs> Carl and, and Sigmund? Team, team Carl and, and Team Sigmund? <laughs> well, in, in some respects, yes. For me, not personally. But in this town, we have several analytic organizations. So we have the Jungian North Pacific Institute of Analytical Psychology, which are the analysts, and then they do some training of of Jungian analysts, and there's a Freudian group that does training, Um, and I think the object relations people do training. And not too many years ago, they had an inter-institute program, so they got together and sponsored a speaker. Yeah, I went to a talk by Donnell Stern that was put on by the inner group there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so they've done some of that. So that's sort of new age, you know, really groovy, um, that we are doing that in this town. Because in the past, they hated each other with a passion and thought the other ones were idiots and that sort of thing. Certainly some of the folks did. Yeah. Uh, In Seattle, we're nicer than people in other parts of the country. Yes, not quite as nice as Minnesotans, but close. Yeah, close. (laughs) And therefore more apt to have an inner relationship like that. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into some specific ideas, sure. okay? A lot of people talk about the collective unconscious. There's another sort of unconscious, right? There's like your individual personal unconscious. So, the personal unconscious, the collective unconscious, please explain. <laughs> so, the personal unconscious are those things I I think a lot of times of the the um iceberg And so the amount of the ice above the water is our consciousness, and the amount of ice below the water is our unconsciousness. And so those are things that are about my own wiring. So the archetypes um, are a little more collective, but, but that we have things in us that are concepts, that we're born with some concepts as well as some... Um, structures. And so the personal unconscious is about me. And so there are things in my life that I have either forgotten or I have not consciously chosen to forget, but they were so painful that they no longer are very available to me. Mm. But it's also just stuff like my third grade teacher's name. I don't know that at the moment. That's in my unconscious. Mm. I could work hard and find it. And maybe values that you learned that aren't entirely conscious. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like you like cake as opposed to tiramisu or something yeah (laughs) Uh, that your preferences values the way you talk the way you act these are all unconsciously you know yeah uh, placed yes when you see parents and little kids like about three or four and you see the child posturing like the parent yeah um, those are the unconscious things that we learn 
So that's an explanation of conscious versus unconscious. Yeah. What about the personal yeah. conscious versus the collective the unconscious? The collective unconscious. And, and some of the more spiritual things are the things that Jung definitely added. Uh-huh. And he read Eastern philosophy, and so he incorporated some of those things. So, so the collective unconscious, Jung postulated, was that there's a connection between all of us, among all of us. So we're, we're, con- we're all connected spiritually, yeah, and energetically. And as a Jungian person, you believe that? Yeah. How how does that work exactly? Because when I read about it in this book, it talks about it. Right. I, it seems as though it's a, I don't, for lack of a better term, a religious belief. This is from Corsinian Wedding's book. The collective unconscious they define as a vast hidden psychic resource shared by all human beings. And they are made up of archetypes, which are organizing principles a system of readiness, a dynamic nucleus of energy, an inherited predisposition to form personality and to view reality according to universal inner patterns. So Jung believes... There is a collective unconscious that is connecting all of us, or that is out there. That we have universal aspects of our personalities that we share in common. We have universal aspects of our personalities that we share in common. So the mother, the father, the guide, the... We all have a mother in us. We all have a father in us. We all have a shadow. We all have a self. Yeah. We all have a Godhead. Yeah. Or a relationship with a Godhead or something. Yeah. And that things will emerge from that collective. Yeah. They will unfold. Unfold in the individual. Yeah. The, the, The collective energy of the mother will unfold within the individual. Yeah. What is the therapeutic action regarding the collective unconscious? Isn't it becoming more aware of that or manifesting it more fully? Well, it's it's like an external backdrop that we can relate to that is bigger than ourselves. Mm-hmm. So like fairy tales are like that. So myths are like that. So that we can elevate things out of the incredibly personal. So yesterday at Christmas, um, my niece and I got into a small thing. I reacted to something she said, which is a historical thing between the two of us. Mm. So taking that to analysis, then we also look at it from a larger picture. Like there might be a fairy tale that has to do with that, that I can learn something from that's not just my relationship with my niece, but it's about larger principles. Um, So it takes the personalization out of it. Yes. This is one of the common things I hear from Jungian people. So help me understand this. And I I think I might be approaching some understanding of it. Uh, A common thing I'll hear from Jungian people is, this happened to me yesterday. I had this fight with my family member. Yeah. That reminds me of this Celtic fairy tale that has to do with a troll under a bridge and and i mean i'm I'm being serious you know i'm trying to come up with some kind of fairy tale it might have to do with persephone and demeter okay yeah and this discussion or this personal awareness of this fairy tale or myth or story that existed long ago or or movie that is out right now helps one to cope or helps one to what to get to get some objective different uh, distance so that I'm not the first person in the world who's ever had this experience. Okay. This is just a human experience. So it normalizes it to some extent? It normalizes it and it objectifies it. So that I, I'll just tell you a tiny bit about my psychology, and that is that I take things much too seriously and critically for myself. So it's like, oh my God, I did it again, rather than... People have done this for millennia. I'm just another human being who got caught in a something. And I'm not happy when I disturb somebody else. I'm I'm never glad that I've done that, and I wish I didn't do that. Is the idea that some other human wrote a story, a myth, a fairy tale, a story about something that is very similar to what I am experiencing right now. It's not the myth. The myth isn't real. Yeah. It's the story that manifested the collective unconscious. Yeah. Some guy 5,000 years ago wrote a, a story and he was experiencing something, a universal human yeah. nature thing, and it manifested in this myth. And I can learn about that myth and recall that myth as I experience a very similar thing now. Yeah. And by recalling that myth that someone wrote a long time ago, it helps me to normalize it and understand that right. it's it's 
It's just being human. It's just being human. Yeah. And I'm not the only one to do this. And it isn't all that different, except it's more flowery language in the, in the myths and fairy tales. It's not that much different than theory. So f- psychological theorists say, this is how we understand human behavior. Right. And then when you and I work with clients, we can step back from what's happening right here in the room and think, okay, I'm connected with this client and I'm thinking about this. Right. So that it provides some kind of a map. Because I think part of the confusion for me previous to this conversation, and I'm still holding out for the possibility that I'm still confused about this, is, is, <laughs> that, the club. is that the myths were regarded by Jungians as truth, as the myth actually happened or something no. along those lines. Oh. No. It's, it's that, that these are concepts that are helpful to us to understand ourselves. That, that it's not that myths or fairy tales are real. Because sometimes I think Jungian people forget that, maybe, <laughs> because I, when I talk to some Jungian people, and I'm not talking about you, I'm talking yeah, yeah. about, they will say things as if the myth happened. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you realize that's a, that's a myth, right? Uh, you know, like they'll say, well, that's, that's the Zeus in you. And I'll be like, you know, Zeus doesn't exist. Uh, and, 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 but maybe I'm just mistaking it. Well, and maybe they're just saying, well, that's... I mean, that, that's, that there's that long string of events where yeah. that's the Zeus in you, but some guy or, or culture made up Zeus to represent this universal truth about human nature, and that's the Zeus in you that was similar to the Greeks back then. Right, right. So that's the shorthand version of that's the part of you that's warrior or eats his children or whatever they're referring to in you, and I've got a big smile on my face as I look at you. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it is giving some kind of personification to the templates ah. that are that are universal in human behavior. I think Jungians need to change their language and their speaking to non-Jungians <laughs> because I think a lot of people run away from Jungians when you when they say stuff like that because they right. think what do you, what are you nuts? Like you <laughs> well, realize, most of us are. <laughs> you realize that Mars didn't exist, right? I th- agree that we all have jargon and we shouldn't use jargon with each other yeah. and it's such a convenient shortcut. Yeah, okay. Well, I, 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 yeah, okay. Well, I can I can get behind that. <laughs> I can get behind that for sure. So, dreams. What I'd like to do before dreams okay. is to actually talk about the shadow, which okay. is part of the, the archetypes. So, the shadow, those things, those aspects in others and in the world where we give too much credence to or we get too annoyed by. And those places are things that I don't like about myself or I am unwilling to acknowledge about myself, the, the positive aspects. And those places that are in our unconscious are the parts that are very useful for us to bring forward. So we call it reclaiming the shadow. There's that place in us that, that demonizes the other or idealizes the other. Mm. And that is not a useful thing for us to do. So I have the capacity to do all those things. Luckily, in my, I didn't have enough trauma in my, in my history that I act out in those really devious and deviant ways. But I do plenty of other things. But that, that aspect of acknowledging that part of us, I think, is really important. And that some therapies, and I'm not disparaging those therapies, but some therapies try to shape our behavior and narrow our behavior rather than call all the team members equal partners. So one might work with a client and explore that part of them that wants to hurt other people, wants to be hostile, wants to protect themselves, or mm-hmm. wants to be mean or, or, or um, run away, mm-hmm. uh, not give, be selfish, mm-hmm. and that we shouldn't shun that part or reject that part or deny that part, right. but to accept the shadow. Right. And that was a, right. a big idea of Carl Jung's. Right. Okay. So I'm going to give you a little example. This was, this was like the best moment in my life. Wow. I know. <laughs> so um, I mentioned this niece. I have one niece and one nephew. The rest of us didn't have any children. So there's a lot going for these kids, a lot (laughs) riding on these kids. Yeah. My sister and I took my niece to see New Kids on the Block. Mm. And she was maybe seven, maybe eight. I was either still in grad school or just out of grad school, didn't have a lot of money. So I bought $25 tickets, which was a lot for me. 75 bucks was a lot of money in those days. And it was in the Tacoma Dome. And we were up way, way near the ceiling. And nobody else was around us. No one else had (laughs) bought those tickets. And in fact, uh, we were so far away, 
and my niece was still young, she didn't realize that the opening band, what she thought was the New Kids, she couldn't see them. They were African-American. We were so far away that she couldn't tell. Oh, wow. She got into a snit and walked down to, there was a a balcony banister right there, and she was down there kind of huffing and puffing, and my sister was getting impatient with her. Your auntie spent good money on this, and, you know, this is a big deal, and so shape up. She was having none of that. And so finally, I got myself together, and I went down, and I put my arms around her from the back and said, you must be so disappointed. And she began to sob. Mm. So the seeing under the behavior and not getting distracted by my irritation at her behavior. Because I, cu- I could have gone there for a long time and said, you know, ungrateful. And nah, 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 nah. But, to, but to really see her disappointment mm-hmm. in my disappointment. So I was disappointed that she was not having a good time. And to relate to that and give to her. So that's an example of accepting the shadow because I could have gotten as irritated as as my sister. Because you weren't acknowledging your shadow. Right. And it would have, therefore, run the show. Right. So by acknowledging it, you can dispel it to some extent. Right. To accept it, to say, well, that's a part of me. I'm irritated. Yeah. I'm disappointed. Oh, I'm disappointed. Maybe she's disappointed. I see. Yeah. Okay. So to look under, rather than staying with that, either that negative or that idealizing affect... Yeah. to go under it and be curious about that. Right. Because at first glance, one might say, well, to acknowledge and accept one's shadow would be to act in a hostile manner or in a mean way. But you're saying by accepting it, it can help. Mm-hmm. It can do the opposite. Right. Yeah. I see. Okay. So then I don't have to act out of it because I've accepted it. And I think of it like a little league team. So sometimes people get so invested in winning that the kids who aren't doing well get shunned off to the side and don't don't get to play the game rather than a really good coach who says everybody has a talent and everybody has a contribution here so let's figure out how we can contribute yeah. that's accepting everybody right. rather than saying I'm only paying attention to the kids who do well I'm only paying attention to the parts of me that I like yeah the parts that are kind and funny and warm i'm just paying attention to that okay and when i don't pay attention to the other parts of myself they get louder right that's where people act out yeah so the psychodynamic part of me of accepting the parts of yourself not denying because when we deny that's when it gains more power absolutely uh how about dreams do you want to talk about sure okay so freud mostly talked about dreams as wish fulfillments and he spent a lot of energy focusing on aggression and sexuality yeah For Jung, it's more about the unconscious being what's called compensatory. So the unconscious says, here's some things that you're not paying attention to. And I'm going to put them, I'll try to put them in kind of a metaphor or a a story format so that you can connect with it. Because if I could have connected it with my consciousness, I already would have. So if it gives me information that's too direct, like we do as therapists, we don't go, well, here's the deal about you. Yeah. And shape up. So we, we, we soften it some, we soften our lens, we soften our voice, we soften our face, and we offer feedback um, that is sometimes confrontive, but not in a, in a aggressive confrontation, but a just, this is what I notice. So my unconscious is saying, this is what I notice, and offering it to me um, in an attempt to present it in a way that I can accept it. With the assumption that I believe that some of our dreams are efforts to provide homeostasis, yes. balance, exactly. health. Exactly. And so the unconscious is saying, hey, you're not paying attention to X, yeah. and yeah. therefore you're off balance. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Jung talked about one-sidedness as not being very useful. Okay. And that, that all the characters, it's, it's kind of like Gestalt theory, that all the characters in the dream are actually me. Mm-hmm. The inanimate and the animate characters are me. Parts of the self. Yeah. So as I hear a dream, I can think, well, maybe that's connected to this theme, this motif um, for that person. But but much more so, I think, in Jungian psychotherapy, the the person who knows the dream is the dreamer. Yeah. And so the clinician offers, first of all, listens with an I don't know stance. Yeah. Because... And and when clients tell dreams, I'm beginning to do some thinking, which is not a good idea. I should just be there present. 
things will strike me, um, and so I pay attention to that. But as as we work with people with any kind of content, but especially dreams, there'll be that aha moment, or not. I mean, maybe we haven't gotten to it, but something will gel for the client, and now that makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. And then we know that, okay, something has happened for the dream. Mm -hmm. And irrespective of what ideas I have or interpretations I have, if it doesn't click for the client, either it's not true or maybe the client isn't quite ready to see it yet. Right. There would be no way to know until they confirm either way. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Traditional dream analysis was top down. Uh, yes. Therapists would say, yes. here's what your dream means. And there's those ridiculous books that say, if you dream yeah, about yeah, yeah, yeah. flying, it means, <laughs> yeah. you know, that yeah. you want to be free and it's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. It's cookbook process. Maybe I should do another podcast about dream analysis, but in general, the way I approach it, and I actually will have this as a ongoing theme in my family of origin class. I'll ask people to, pre- to present dreams. Great. And I quote unquote, analyze them in class. So the student talks about the dream or the client talks about the dream. And I say, and, and then I, I'll, I'll get more details because a lot of times when people rec- recall dreams, they, they, they tell a very uh, short version of it. And then when you start asking, well, actually, yeah, I felt a little this way or, yeah, I guess it was hot out. And I, I, yeah. I do kind of remember. And yeah. I'll say, well, how yeah. did you feel in this moment? Well, I, I don't know. Cause it's not always apparent. It's That's like, right. That's it's right. like, Oh, I jumped about my arm fell off. And then I was, <laughs> how did you feel when you arm fell off well i was curious but i strangely wasn't afraid yeah so it's like oh, okay so you're curious but not not afraid that's interesting yeah um and i just start asking more questions and then i and then i start to ask him about associations well what does arm falling off mean to you what is did you see something recently that's good union work okay so so well i call it psychodynamic work <laughs> um and it's in the same corner yeah and then start exploring those associations and it's all based on what they say. Mm-hmm, and if, mm-hmm. if they say, I don't know, I don't, I don't have any associations with that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And just move on. And then, and then yeah. usually what happens is people will say, Oh my God, this totally relates to this blah, 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 blah. Right. Right. And, and then they're like, wow, you're really good at analyzing dreams. And I think <laughs> I didn't do any of it. Yeah. You know, I just asked a bunch of questions. I'm just curious. And you made these. Well, the curiosity yeah. and you brought your presence to it yeah. and you, and you held them and, um, I call what my clinical consultant does, I call it shepherding. Mm. So he's he's not shaping me. He doesn't have a preconceived notion. Yeah. But he notices things and he says, how about going in that direction? Right. And I would never say, wow, you dreamt about an arm falling off. <laughs> do you think that has anything to do with uh, power? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the instant I say that to someone is the instant that I impose That's right. That's this right. thing inside their brain. And my power relationship with them plays into it. Absolutely. And, and now they're like, maybe it does mean power. Yeah. And I, but, and, but then you can see they're in their head. You just went into your head. Yeah. And that's not where the dream comes from. Right. And often dream analysis is associated with this action of a expert saying, yeah. it sounds like it means power. And, and I'll see a lot of... Uh, and I've seen some presentations of art therapy where let's say, ooh, a spiral, well, that means blank. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they'll tell that to the client. And I think, how do you know what a spiral means to this person? Y- you know, that is a, an abuse of power in it. You can tell it gets me angry. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and so, so the, the collective unconscious is that part that says, okay, here's some templates that probably mean this. Mm. But the personal unconscious is where the individual says, this is what it means to me. And there's some connection between the two. It's not as though your thinking is completely off base. It's just that it has to come first from the person. And then we come to thinking. When I do case consultation class, which is the class that accompanies students' internship, when students present um, their case presentation, um, they talk about the genogram of the client and and um, sometimes their own, and then we'll read the packet, and the first thing I say is, okay, let's go around, and what is your affective response, meaning what are your feelings, what are your images, what happened in your body? Mm-hmm. If we if we go away from those, mm-hmm. we'll never get back to it. Once we go to our heads, we can't get back. Mm-hmm. So that part of your doing the affective work is right on. And that affective body awareness work with mm-hmm. as a 
intern is presenting their client and the other interns and yourself, you reflect at first, what am I feeling? What's in my body? That might be a reflection of what the client is experiencing or what the intern is experiencing while they're with the client. And that's very informative. And again, it's uncanny. We pick up stuff as human beings, and that's incredibly valuable. It is is that non-provable empiricism. Yeah. And it's really valuable. All right. Dreams. Well, cross that off the list. (laughs) Let's get to typology. Sure. So Jung was interested in typology of personality and tried to come up with different spectra to describe people, say, you know, was extrovert introvert his as well? Yes. Myers-Briggs is based on... Singer Loomis is another one. Okay. In terms of typology, many the, the job of a theorist is to make sense of things and to make frameworks for things. And again, it comes from their own personality, their own family of origin. This is how I see the world. doesn't mean it's right, but it does give us something to hang our, our hats on. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of definitions, extroversion is um, preferring to focus on the outer world of people or things. And the opposite of that is introversion, which is um, preferred to focus on the inner world of ideas and impressions. And so thinking and feeling are opposite. So thinking is tending to base decisions on logic and and on objective analysis. And feeling is, again, a deciding. It's not so much emotion. It's a deciding to base decisions primarily on values and and on subjective evaluation of person-centered concerns. So let me give you an example of that. So I'm feeling more than thinking, and um, I went out to buy a car years ago, and a friend of mine said, okay, let's look in Consumer Report, and I, and I want you to really think about what you want and not just take something that you like. So a friend of mine, another friend of mine came with me, and we went to Toyota, and we went to Subaru, and we went to, to Honda, and I drove a couple cars. Honda, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so when I got to Honda... Um, the cord was too big, and the, um, what's the other one? Civic. Civic. Civic was oh, a little too small. And then I glanced over, and there was a red Del Sol. Mm. And I said, that's my car. Mm. So I had done enough thinking with the left side of my brain to say, okay, I, I want a, a foreign car. I want a... a Dependable. Dependable, yes. I, I'd had an Isuzu. I didn't want another Isuzu. Um, I wanted a good, strong car with a good recommendation. And I recognized what I want mm. rather than completely made it with with my conceptual basis. That's the feeling. So mm. on values mm. and on on preferences that have to do with subjectivity rather than as much with objectivity. Mm. There was no objective difference or preference for the Del Sol over the Accord or the Civic. It was more of a subjective preference based on values. Is that what you're saying? Like a feeling you got? On attraction. On attraction to the Del Sol. So not just... It's not like out of control, illogical. No. But it... It it can be. So there's a continuum. Okay. And so some people are way down at at either end of the continuum. And then it is, so we can get into analysis paralysis and never make a decision because it's always like, well, I don't have enough data. Or on the other end of, of of the continuum into feeling that it's only what I like rather than what makes any sense at all. And the idea is to be balanced in between these two? Yeah. Okay. So to do enough work with both sides, that then when I see it, it's not just impulse, because intuition, we're not quite to intuition yet, but intuition and feeling without any thinking or sensing is out of control, as are thinking and sensing without any intuition or feeling. So it's like, again, like handedness, that I need to use both hands, even though my right hand is better at some things. So when someone on the Myers-Briggs, for instance, scores very high in one direction, then in therapy or or with their own personal work, the idea is to bring them to more in between. Yes. I see. So we consolidate into some kind of typology that is our natural temperament if we're left to our own devices. If we have what Rogers calls unconditional positive regard, we blossom like we are made to. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes family will say, no, actually, I don't want you to do that. I want you to do this. So following my own temperament, I will consolidate in my early life so that I can function and make sense of the world and and learn things and be independent. And then at about midlife, 
we often, again, if left to our own devices, do the other side. And so that's that individuation time. Jung talked about people don't really become adults until about 35, and it's probably longer now, later now, because we live longer. Well, so let me get this straight. So based on our personality and based on our experiences, we have a true self or a a, a best-case scenario personality and that society or family will push us potentially yeah. away from that and that's when problems happen so so say on the on the extroverted introverted spectrum if someone were say uh, moderately more introverted than extroverted and society wants them to be extroverted because society values extroversions yes extroverted people um, they might feel pressure to become more extroverted and therefore become um, out of balance with themselves yes even though they might be moving toward a more balance between extroversion and introversion right so it's not always about necessarily bringing them to the middle of extroversion no. And introversion no it's about becoming who is what's most what's best for them right but right. if people are far to one side that might be a bad thing for them and and i think it's going to be a difficult road for them if it's that if that's truly what it is then that's truly what it is and it'll be harder so there are people who even on the multiple intelligences if i only have mechanical intelligence and i don't have any other intelligence that's going to be hard for me and i'm going to be really good at what i do yeah so that dilettante that is good at several things rather than the expert is kind of that interplay. I see. But there are people who are, they just are who they are. Could you come on the show sometime after testing my co-hosts and talk specifically about their personality as measured by whatever instrument you would like to do and, and maybe go back and forth with them about how to interpret it? Because I feel like a lot of these tests, when they are given and read, people go, People walk away from it with a very vague understanding or a misunderstanding of what the instrument is providing to them. And the way you're talking about it, I think, is much more nuanced and, and interesting. Absolutely. So, I, so I'm going to give you my other favorite joke. Okay. And that is it has to do with typology in a way. When I was saying that we all have our constructs, so we lay them out on other people. And so when I go to parties, and I don't very often because I'm an introvert, and I talk to a a person who I don't know, which I don't do very often because I'm uncomfortable with that. But at some point, because I'm a woman, they'll finally get around to ask me what I do for work, for work if I work. And I say, well, I'm a psychologist. And the person will say, oh, I better stop, stop talking about myself then. And I say, too late. Because we all make judgments all the time. Right, right. Yeah, I run into that exact same thing. In fact, if I'm in a situation where I don't think it's going to matter. I won't tell them what I right. I make something up. I'll, I'll say, I, I work at Microsoft. <laughs> um, any last words about this? So the last word I have is that um, I just recently went to a high school reunion this summer. And at one quite some time ago, um, somebody said to me, wow, you've really changed. And the sense I made out of that is because I've been in therapy, I'm more who I am. And I wasn't. I was very careful. So it, it's really helped you and people notice right away yeah. that you've changed over the years. Yeah. Well, that must feel good. Feels great. It's all been worth it. I was going to say, <laughs> all that money and time invested, I got something out of it. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Anne. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. I really feel like I've learned a lot. Cool. I feel much less confused, honestly. Good. What I've learned personally, is that Jungians aren't very much different from me. No. It's just sometimes the language throws me off a little bit. Yeah. Because you integrate systems and family of origin speak and philosophy into it, it's very similar to me. And, and I think Jung was actually the forerunner of many of the theorists. Yeah. He doesn't get credited. Like when I would read the family of origin textbook, I was like, this is Jungian. Really? There's no mention of Jung. Yeah. Adler's another one. Yeah. Sullivan yeah, doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us and please take care of yourself.